Welcome to Machine Learning. Well, another week has gone by, and uh, I've been uh, thinking about these uh, 3D printed homes. And, you know, I've talked a little bit about it, but it's the more I, I think about it, is, uh, you know, it's. One of the things is this low-cost uh, housing, and it's it's become somewhat popular in Africa. And the reason being is, you know, this some of the it's a Africa is a very resource-rich nation. In my mind, one of the most wealthy nations in the world for resources, but <coughs> the um, habitation living areas are very poor and so building uh, homes that are structurally strong and keep the person people out of the elements um, is something that's very appealing and especially where you can use technology to reduce down the cost of living and uh, provide reasonably low-cost living space, then that's, that's very appealing. And I think that the 3D printing offers that capability. And so it will be interesting to see if in 10 years how many 3D printed homes there are. You know, maybe right now there could be a thousand but will there be millions of 3D printed homes? So, you know, you could have some of the uh, areas where land is super cheap and that, you know, you could provide the 3D printed homes. Now, the, the thing is, is creating homes where <clears throat> land is cheap is, is not always going to be ideal because, you know, you still need to have a job to pay for that. And so you need to have a way to get to work, um, you know. And so in small villages, the the work was is either done on farms or, or done in the you know in the city or community, and there's different trade that's going on. But if you're able to uh, mobilize these three D printing homes in areas that are remote so they're able to uh, you provide the materials and it um, does its own mixing and pouring of that material and uh, the designs and then it's the, the, the process of finishing the home is relatively simple then you could have individuals um, in third world countries utilizing the 3D printed homes to build communities. And once you empower people with the, these type of uh, tools, they can uh, fabricate with uh, 3D printing, they can fabricate tools, they can build um, 
energy systems that can gather electricity, that can power pumps, that can you know, water fields, um, and provide electricity to homes. I was looking at this one computer that Amazon produces. Uh, it's a $15 computer. Truly amazing. So you you know you achieve that uh, low cost realm now with an operating system. You can provide uh, electricity through either solar or some other means like that, um, and you connect to Wi-Fi. Then the communities in, in remote areas could get access to internet. And through that connection to the internet, begin to engage in commerce and, uh, and things like that, of that nature. And so, you know, the education does not need to be high cost. I mean, one of the huge advantages of internet is has been that we can reduce down the cost of information. So, um, there are training programs that people are paying subscriptions. Like I have, I pay a subscription for a couple of, for, uh, for my training and I'm, I'm doing continuous training and, you know, it helps me at work, you know, because I, I, I get a full understanding of the tool and the language and so when I have a problem, I can look at it from a number of different perspectives and resources and examples. And I think that's one way to learn is by example and, you know, to read uh, the concepts and, and, and to share ideas. And that sharing of ideas is very important. It... Uh, it creates the world that we we know where ideas can become reality. And so doing things digitally has been a way to accomplish work because that data actually represents work. And so understanding what work has been done and trends in the work or patterns in the work is uh, as an important feature to uh, modern society. But I do like this idea. See, the 3D printing is something that kind of captures my attention because I've worked in agriculture and I know the importance of providing food to the world. I'm working in construction now, and that's providing shelter. And you know, maybe the last thing I'll, I'll work on is um, providing well-being. I've, I've started up my art again, and I'm writing uh, self-help books. And I, one thing I realized in the process of self-help is that people have to have power 
in order to uh, begin to fix problems. And so this is kind of a, a way, technology is one way for people to have more power to fix uh, problems that they have in their life. Clean water, food, shelter, um, information. But I might point out that the internet isn't the overall solution to all things. Because in the 18th century, students would borrow encyclopedias or they would read uh, information, facts, classifications. They learned how to, to understand the encyclopedias, which were at that time the accumulation of human knowledge condensed form accurate language carefully reviewed and edited and you know sometimes I kind of wonder if uh, if it would be beneficial to acquire some of these old encyclopedias and then read the content and see what 18th century man was actually learning did he master English? Did he have an understanding of vocabulary? Did he have a, a grasp of history? Did, what range of, of understanding did he have about the world? And, you know, we look in the 21st century and we're talking about thinking machines and we have the almost any question that you ask the, the, you know, the search engines can find relevant content to. But when you look, think about the 18th century man's discipline for learning, he sat in a one-room classroom. He had a, a teacher who knew a lot of knowledge and they they over the years they taught and they worked together and they learned together and that's a beautiful process when you think about it um, today everything is more corporate you go to a, a, a large facility uh, you have different rooms where you listen to and you acquire just the information that you need for the courses that you're studying and you study a wide variety of courses and um, no one teacher influences you in your education totally. That it's the sum of um, all the teachers you have, good and bad. So sometimes you'll have a teacher that you get along with other times you'll have teachers that you don't. But I was always careful to know which teachers I liked. Which ones I didn't. And the ones I didn't, I didn't really do very well in their course. And the ones that I really liked, I, I usually excelled and did really well. And uh, and so, you know, you, you, can, you have to kind of get a feel for the quality of the teacher. 
um, well, and I and I, I was thinking about, you know, what kind of education will my grandkids have? You know, they're reading lots of books now. They're homeschooling, um, and they're, you know, they're really learning a lot. And they go places and they write things about things and they're creative. And but will our world be run by machines? Will the mass and the abstract thinking be done uh, by machines through mechanical reasoning? You know, like when you plug in an equation into Mathematica, do you really need to know all the steps for the integrations or the differentials or the numeric uh, numeric methods and then how many how many things will the AI be able to understand mathematically and will AI start to formulate its own math and will we be able to understand that math or will we just look at the results and accept the results of the math um, you know just kind of like fractals for example you know you look at fractal patterns will we accept uh, you know patterns that are are discovered through fractal analysis you know it's been something that um, has been suggested that that uh, AI and fractals might might have a, a link and at one time I was going to study that and see if there was some ways to discover pattern through using AI and fractals um, I know that there was some work that was done with fractals and images creating a condensed uh, format for storing information so it was more of a formula. Your your image was more of a formula than it was uh, uh, values, RGB values for the image. So if you had enough computation power, you could calculate your your image, and that and that became kind of this vector imaging uh, technology. Fractals through simple equations hold lots of information. And maybe things like the stock market follow fractal patterns. Well, another thing that's interesting to me is uh, the use of uh, AI to recognize behavior and images so if you run AI let's say AI is running uh, through all the video on social media and it's looking for certain types of behavior and activities that um, could be useful for finding cr cr criminals let's say you're looking for uh, 
you have on America's Most Wanted, you have a list of criminals. You know, it used to be that you'd watch America's Most Wanted and and uh, you would listen to the story of the crime and then, you know, you there, there was a hunt for a fugitive and sometimes they would give you the forensics of how they found the person and what they had done and, and uh, you know, how they were brought to justice. But will in the future the AI uh, be given a list of fugitives and then it will get access to all of the imaging, photos, internet, pictures of pictures, you know, perhaps let's say you're uh, like the other day I was uh, uh, at a uh, fundraiser for the homeless and our company had to participate in, in that event. And I took a selfie of myself and then there was a person walking behind my picture and got caught in the, the picture frame. So if that picture then got posted to Instagram, then would the AI pick up that person in the background and do a uh, identification of who who he was. And given like if Instagram knows the GP from the picture, if it knew the location, um, would they then know that there was a sighting of this individual in uh, in Idaho? And so then um, maybe they would could watch uh, the CCD images from the traffic for all the cars and the AI uh, might be able to detect the individual in a car as it comes through an intersection. But these are things that, you know, uh, AI is definitely possible. Whether it's moral to do or not is another question, but it's uh, in terms of the capability, AI is definitely capable of identifying individuals in large streams of data. And, it, and the question is, is how much resource is being dedicated or paid for to uh, provide that level of identification? Well, AI could also listen to phone calls. That's another area, phone calls, emails, text. And it, it could be watching for for a certain signal. So like, uh, let's say you, you're looking for a fugitive and the fugitive um, has uh, voice recordings of him talking. So then as the phone calls are coming in, the AI is analyzing fragments of maybe billions of phone calls, and when it detects a, a phone call with a signature that it's identified that it has a, a, a voice print that is similar to the one that it's looking for, does it at that moment uh, get the cell phone information and channel that to uh, individuals looking it's looking for to uh, uh, 
pro to to find and apprehend. Well, then the question is: is the function of crime and efficiency? Let's say that uh, there's a million fugitives out there, and the, that our police are looking for uh, due to some crime or another. And now AI improves the efficiency by even 20%. Then all of a sudden the, the, the load on the legal system increases significantly as thousands upon tens of thousands of individuals are, are caught and apprehended. So it's like it's like uh, what I was telling one of my colleagues about fraud detection. You know, fraud detection is acceptable in some ways because it ha occurs at a, a low percentage. It's, you know, less than one percent of all transactions are are in a fraud category that are detectable. And then all of a sudden, you you come up with an algorithm that is more efficient at detecting fraud cases um, based on better AI algorithms, then insurance companies have to pay out more money for uh, fraud claims, and then companies have to prosecute and more cases of fraud to uh, recoup some of their costs, but they probably don't recoup all their costs, and the consumer uh, probably uh, doesn't break even either. So the company and the consumer doesn't break even, and the insurance company uh, <coughs> has a payout, and so it has to start raising its premiums. So the whole thing, the whole system kind of has a, a, a balance and efficiency um, can increase cost. Now it's true to the consumer that their sense of well-being increases and maybe that's the market marketing aspect to the fraud detection is that, you know, with these new fraud algorithms that you're bringing more criminals to justice and because you're doing that, the, the consumer feels um, confident that even if the, their information is used inappropriately by a criminal, that they um, will there is the company will work to find the, that that. Uh, fraudulent transaction and then protect the consumer. So I, I pay money every year for LifeLock and because it has the million dollar, well I pay for the million dollar coverage for identity theft and um, you know it's warning me of any activity or suspicious activity on my credit line or any transactions that might uh, be inappropriate. But you know, it would be very surprising if you were a, uh, if you were a, you came to realize that someone used your 
financial information to purchase a home on or a car or something of that nature and you weren't aware of that happening and uh, you know one thing that companies are now pushing for is is to have longer passwords, more complex passwords, and more frequent changing of the passwords as a way to protect against uh, uh, unauthorized access to information. So, you know, I think eventually there's going to be some AI-based security that will be monitoring all the data packets and and uh, verifying that the person who's requesting the information is authorized you know why would uh why would someone from Russia be accessing a corporate network those packets should be suspicious I mean why you know unless you're in Russia why would you unless you're and and also if you weren't uh, doing business in Russia and having salespeople or analysts in Russia, why would you have a, um, a set of packets from Russia or China coming in? So you know those those uh, source locations should you know begin to signal a flag. That, that you know at the router level or the bridge level or the gateway level that those as those packets are coming in the AI is analyzing it and and asking the questions you know does this make sense if it doesn't make sense and maybe it's not a, a threat it uh, lets the packets through and but if it is a threat it it might send off an alert that there are incoming packets from an unknown or strange location. So we're really kind of behind the the times where you know we're we're still using uh, authentication, third-party authentication, OAuth, token-based authentication to do a lot of our our work and. You know, we have refresher tokens so that, you know, the tokens don't stay out there for a long amount of time. And the use, usage requires a refresher token. Um, but I do think that, that AI-based security will be more critical in the future. And then so you have to have these high-speed, very fast AI systems that are monitoring uh uh, data packets and, and you know making decisions and learning from the data packets and making decisions on whether to accept or reject data packets well you know if there's a, a, a denial of service event on a data stream you know you don't want to you don't want to keep uh letting that, those packets come in and overloading your system. But it's, you know, it's it's interesting because there's so much crime that 
occurs in the dark web, that 80 percent of that content is not accessed or indexed. That Google only indexes maybe five percent of the overall internet, and so large portions of the internet are largely ignored if they're not <clears throat> if they don't have uh, a popular user base. And the same with uh, YouTube. You know, if you don't have a large subscriber base, you're largely ignored. And so, you know, building that subscriber base is is really critical to getting monetization and then your content has to, to stay really clean so that you don't have any strikes against you. Because if you get any strikes, then that can, that can destroy your monetization um, possibilities. So you really do, the world is really niching more and it's getting more specific and content is getting, uh, you know, is exploding out there. And everyone is racing to become the expert. And uh, and it's really great in some ways because you have this richness of ideas and, and new uh, products and services. I really like Codex. I've been using Codex quite a bit. And uh, having it solve hard and easy coding problems. And... One thing I, I, I like about it is, you know, I could do, uh, sometimes I, I do searches by just asking the question to Google and then looking at the Stack Overflow or uh, SQL Shack, you know, answers or, or even looking at the documentation, technical documentation uh, provided by the company online. And these type of features are, are ways I can find information I want and solve problems. But one thing I, I like about the Codex is that, you know, it, it's a, a problem that a lot of people have posted information on. It's learned from that, and it has kind of a summary view of that, and so I can run it, and I can look at it. And sometimes it's not even correct but it gives me an idea like for example the other day I was looking at uh, a way to recursively look through all subdirectories for a particular pattern in a text file and uh, you can do that with uh, bash and it's shell and you can recursively look through these directories and you can search for uh, files with a certain extension. But you know, you, you have to know the parameters. And the nice thing about Codex is you just say search all the directories looking for uh, all files with a certain extension. And it writes the code for you. And it's really amazing because it's pretty close. And so you look at the code and you think, and almost like a code walkthrough, it's almost like a computer or human code walkthrough. You look through the code and decide, hey, that looks kind of interesting, let me try it. And you try it and it doesn't do quite like what you were thinking. So you make some modifications and you move forward from that. 
sometimes it's even better because uh, I was working a problem and I, I found some solutions on the internet for the problem and the way the it uh, the solutions on the internet worked were not correct because they didn't handle some edge cases or boundary cases and so when I put those boundary cases in and checked it against the codex version it worked so it was like wow the machine actually wrote better code than the human code and the human code was accepted by the users um, and I don't know sometimes the human code is uh, I found that in some cases it they accepted it and it really didn't even work. And so I pointed out, hey, you, there's some flaws in this, in this logic here. It doesn't, it doesn't really work in all cases. So it works in a, a specific case, but in all cases it doesn't work. So you have these boundary cases where, you know, it, it wasn't proven uh, to to be able to handle those boundary cases. And so, you know, that becomes this uh, uh, challenge with people versus AI for the coding. And, uh, you know, it's, um, you know, it's pretty interesting that, uh, um, they, uh, we get this kind of uh, interaction now where machines now are writing code. Well, you know, it's also true with case tools. Case tools have been around for a long time where they built their own proprietary language and so you had to learn their proprietary language. And um, it did a better job at reducing down complexity for the user but then it, it uh, compiled into Java. So kind of like Scala, for example, you know, it's kind of a higher level language and, you know, it has less complexity. And so you can, you know, you can write your, your code in Scala and it'll run on any uh, Java virtual machine. And that, that then, um, is kind of this advantage for um, for language. Now, let's say in the future, you know, we natural language processing becomes very very good. So instead of asking people, do you know how to write C sharp or Java or Scala, they say, you know. What's your uh, analysis skills? And so maybe analyst skills will become even more in demand than programmer skills because the programmers will be competing with the machines. And so, yeah, maybe you get this really world-class programmer that can outdo uh, a machine because he's just got some really cool uh, ways of solving problems and you know he has a really good understanding of 
computer architecture and optimizations and, you know, kind of this thing between good, better, and best. You know, at what point will the computer get better than humans at coding? Well, you know, it's like, for example, in Python, if you're, if you're looking at, uh, uh, two, you know, two items or two lists, you want to use a zip and then you might want to use a, a, a transform and a map or something like in that combination where it's more Pythonic because it runs faster. So, but the, the, the question is, is will machines refactor human code into more efficient code. So it's almost like a language translation. It says, okay, yeah, you've got a for loop here, but you could have used a zip, uh, a map, and a transform to do the exact same thing. This is equivalent. So, it, you know, it looks at the code, refactors the code, makes it into more Pythonic coding, and you're really happy because now your code is efficient, uh, more efficient. And so as it gets more efficient, then uh, uh, you, you get, uh, you're, you're happier because it uh, uh, is reducing cost and it's reducing time. So those are things that are important to um, our world, you know, these are things that are just starting to emerge. I imagine in most of the, the visual editors like Visual Studio Code or Visual Studio Professional or Max that, you know, Codex is going to be an important component. It's going to be refactoring your code. You know, you can press a button and it'll refactor. Or you can have auto refactor on like you have uh, IntelliSense. And then you could have things where you could just type a message to the editor and say, you know, hey, in this section of code, will you please uh, write an algorithm for loading data loading the following data into a tree structure and creating an organizational hierarchy. Wow. Go, go try to figure that one out uh, using the tree, tree uh, module and then adding different nodes and then figuring out how to traverse the nodes by creating pathways and then uh, you know generating up a report that represents this hierarchy, organizational hierarchy, that you loaded in from a table, a parent-child table, where you know it has the the parent ID held in one of the columns in the in the child table. So. Um, the AI will definitely be used that way. And the other thing too is, you know, I just got done, or I'm, I'm in the process of getting done with uh, unit or how to do testing in Python. And I really like it, but it's, it's really interesting how complex testing is. And, uh, 
and you've really got to be a top-notch programmer to be a tester um, because you have to understand what the programmer did and then you also have to be able to uh, incorporate your test classes inside of a test-driven designed architecture where things are not all implemented at the point that you're writing your unit test. So you're, you, you're doing all this mocking up and, and uh, you know, of the modules. And sometimes you're like even passing the mod in the class or skipping it so you can, you can pass the uh, method or you can skip it. Uh, depending on certain conditions, I'm in my brain trying to understand. Well, like, why would you ever? Why would you ever test something that doesn't have implementation? But there, there could be cases in the test-driven design where implementation is coming later. You know, so everyone's in this fluid uh, status where things are are coming together really quickly, and. Uh, and then they're being pieced together and you know things things are not yet built so there's lots of to-dos in their process and uh and that that uh um, has to be all staged and so you're you're taking your your code base and you're taking your programming base and you're trying to and you're trying to keep uh, pace with each other and so as programmers are putting together their code the testers are assembling their unit tests and cases and building in that, that world of, of uh, programming and so then what happens is that, you know you look at your code coverage and you look at your you know, unit tests passing, and you use something like Jarvis to do your continuous integration, or you use uh, Microsoft's uh, CI/CD. You know, those type of things are are going to uh, uh, help you. All right, enough talking. Those are my thoughts for this week.